Well, good morning, everybody. So glad uh, to see you here today. Glad you've joined us here at Southwinds. Uh, we are continuing for one extra week our 40 days of prayer series. So if you want to call it 50 days of prayer, that's all right. And uh, as we get started, I hope that you actually noticed our progress out in our lobby as you came in this morning. Uh, you uh, should have seen that the sprung is, is becoming the refinery, uh, which is what it's going to be called for our student ministry when they occupy this building once we're into our new season of ministry fully. And uh, I just want to highlight this because here's what you need to know. We, we announced we have a delay in our grand opening last Sunday uh, but we are continuing as planned with our preparations. As we seek uh, to resolve the challenges that are in front of us, uh, we are continuing uh, to move ahead to do the prep and the planning that we were already going to do. And so that installation of, of that new wall was on the, the docket already. We went ahead with it. We also, if you want to look at this picture here, have continued to do training. This is a picture taken yesterday um, in our students, current student center, 102 people were here uh, getting trained for the new guest services ministry, the transition to our, our new campus, our new program that we're going to be doing. And you can also know that we've had previous trainings for children and student ministry volunteers. 160 people uh, have been trained for those. We have one more guest services ministry training next Saturday, and we we're expecting with that and another uh, planned thing for another 120 people who are volunteering, getting ready, preparing ourselves for what God has for us as soon as he opens those doors. So we're getting ready. Uh, we want to be ready when God answers the prayers that we're praying in the timing uh, that he gives us. And uh, as, as far as that goes, I don't have any updates to give you on our delay uh, but I do want to encourage you to please keep praying um, that God's going to open those doors, uh, get us into our new uh, uh, building very soon. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to keep moving ahead in faith, and uh, we will tell you as soon as we have something uh, to share with you. So uh, with that being said, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And as you do that, I want to tell you a true story. This took place... On January 13, 2018, uh, there was an employee who was working with the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and he faced a crisis. He believed that North Korea had launched a ballistic missile that would strike Hawaii in just a few minutes. And so at 8.07 a.m., that worker sent out an emergency warning all across Hawaii that said this, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Now, it was originally reported that the worker just hit the wrong button, but we now know that was not true. He really thought that a missile had been launched. So you, you say, well, what happened? I mean, how do you get confused about that? Well, as it turns out, the night shift had planned a test and the day shift worker misunderstood the plan because communication between the two shifts was unclear. And he ended up thinking, this is a real attack, not a drill. And so he issued this warning, and all of Hawaii basically freaked out. A fear and confusion took over as one resident described the island. It was a panic zone. And for 40 minutes... Everyone thought that a North Korean missile was inbound and they were all about to die. 
Now, part of the reason it took so long to get the truth out was the governor had forgotten his Twitter password, and he was unable to log in and send out a message correcting the error. So, first lesson for today, don't forget your Twitter password. But I want you to imagine this morning that you live in Hawaii and you get that message, and it's not a mistake. Today we're reading this story in 2 Chronicles 20 from the life of a man named King Jehoshaphat. And in this story, he gets a warning, and it's like finding out a missile is already in the air. There is an immense army that has gathered Uh, Close by, they are coming to invade, they are coming to kill everyone, and they're only a few miles away. They have come by stealth, they've caught Judah completely unprepared, and there is no time for the king to assemble the army. There's no time to mount a defense. He doesn't know what to do. See, Jehoshaphat knew what it was like to feel fear and panic like the Hawaiians felt last year, only this time it was real. It wasn't a warning. It wasn't a test. It wasn't a drill. Jehoshaphat's story can teach us today what to do when you don't know what to do. And I think we've all been there, right? Maybe we're there right now. And if we're not there, the chances are good that one day, probably soon, we're going to be there. Maybe today you don't know what to do about your marriage. And it feels like you've tried everything, but your spouse is hostile. Maybe they're indifferent. Maybe they treat you disrespectfully. Maybe it's much more than that. You don't know what to do. Maybe you don't know what to do with a child. They're in a deep kind of rebellion that threatens to destroy their life. Or they're struggling with a life-altering question and you fear for their future. You don't know what to do. Maybe you don't know what to do with a career decision that seems like it's going to change the course of your life. Maybe you don't know what to do with your finances. Maybe you don't know what to do about your health or your spouse's health. Maybe you don't know what to do about your anxiety and your depression. Maybe you feel like you just don't know what to do about life in general. You see, we all face these kinds of situations in life where we don't know what to do. And so the question for us today is, what should you do when you don't know what to do? Now, since most of us probably haven't been reading 2 Chronicles uh, recently, this is one of those places in the Old Testament where Bible reading plans go to die. I thought I would set a little bit of context for you, okay? Uh, The year is somewhere around 850 B.C. King Jehoshaphat has been ruling for about 20 years, and overall he's been a pretty good king. As part of his reign, he has sent officials out all around the nation to teach God's people God's commandment, which they had forgotten. He has also led Uh, the peoples to put their false gods away, to reject idolatry. He's been a godly king. But what we're about to see is this godly king, he's facing a life or death crisis, and he doesn't know what to do. Let's introduce the story and and see what's happening. Verses 1 and 2 tell us this. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Now, these were 
ancient peoples who were distantly related to the stalactites and the stalagmites. They're ancestors of the gigabytes and the gesundheits. Thank you very much. Verse 2 says, Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So three nations have come, and they've come from the other side of the Dead Sea, and they've come to attack God's people. They're just a few miles away. Judah is greatly outnumbered. For some of you, uh, this will help you uh, conceive this this scene. It's sort of like uh, a scene in The Lord of the Rings, two towers where Aragon is on his horse and he looks out and he sees this vast army of orcs, tens and tens of thousands of them, all marching for Helm's Deep. Jehoshaphat looks out and he sees them coming and he's shocked by their vast numbers. He's shocked by how close they are. There's no time to respond, no time to gather an army, no time to make a plan. He's in a situation where he doesn't know what to do. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? I'm going to show you four things today that we we draw from this story. And here's the first one. You can write it down in your notes. First of all, when you don't know what to do, you stop and pray. You stop and pray. Look at verses 3 and 4. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So this massive army, just a few miles away, no time to repair, and people are going to die. His family's going to die. His neighbors are going to die. His friends are going to die. Everybody he cares about is probably going to die, and if they don't get killed, they're going to be sold into slavery. And on top of that, something we're inclined to miss, God's temple could be destroyed. It hadn't been that long since King Solomon had built this massive, glorious temple where where God's presence dwelled. The temple of God is at risk. So it's no surprise that Jehoshaphat was alarmed, that he was afraid. And I just want to point something out that's that's important for us. The, The reaction of fear in a situation like this is normal. It's human. And it's okay. You see, the issue really is what do we do next with our fears? What do you do with your fears? Do you get discouraged and give up? Do you descend into debilitating panic and anxiety where you can't function? Some of you, when you're afraid, you get angry and you lash out maybe at the people around you. What Jehoshaphat does is this. He turns his fear into prayer prayer. He, he, he proclaims a fast for all Judah, so he wants everyone joining him in prayer, joining him in fasting. And what this is telling us is that he is turning away from all of his resources and his strength. He's turning to God. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't do what many of us would do. See, we, we want to take action. We want to fix things. How many of you, your instinct is to fix? You need to fix. You must fix, even when that's a very bad idea. See, if I'd heard about this, I think I would have been tempted to say, let's start an evacuation of the city. Get as many people out of here as we can. Let's try somehow to mount a defense, gather a few soldiers, try to slow down the advancing army. Let's get some soldiers, like, blow up the road and blow up the bridges, even though explosives didn't exist back then. Whatever. Whatever. Something, do anything. 
just try to fix it. But he doesn't do that. He stops and he seeks the Lord in prayer. See, when we're caught off guard, when we lack wisdom and when we're afraid, this is what we need to do. We need to stop and pray. And I ask you, is this what you do when you face a crisis? Do you stop and pray or do you just try to fix things out of your own wisdom, your own strength? Now, again, remember the magnitude of this. Jehoshaphat is the king. His response is going to determine if tens of thousands of people either live or die. Everyone's life depends on his decision. And he shows us the best thing we can do when we don't know what to do is first we stop and pray. We seek God, not take action. And we do this out of the recognition that when we don't know what to do, there is one who knows what to do, always. When we don't know what to do, there is one who alone has the wisdom and who has the power that we need, the one who alone is the Almighty God, the one who alone is supreme over all the nations, the one who alone is the king. And it would have been easy for King Jehoshaphat to get that wrong. You know, most kings in history have. But Jehoshaphat is not prideful. And you need to know in your life, the humble response when you don't know what to do is to stop and pray. And he's not prideful. He knows that he isn't the most important person in this moment, that God is. And so he, he shows great humility. He goes to God and asks God to fix the problem. He goes to God in total dependence. So if you don't know what to do, the first thing, the best thing that you can do is to stop and pray. That brings us to the second thing we see. You can write this down in your notes too. As you pray, focus on God, not your problems. Now, focusing on God is what happens as we pray, but I want to take it even deeper than that. Some of you may respond to hearing this. You need to stop and pray by thinking, well, I'm not really sure that it's going to make a difference. I'm not really sure that if I pray, God is actually going to answer Some of you may say, I think I believe that prayer works, but I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. Well, we learn some things from what Jehoshaphat does, how he prays. In verses 5 through 12, he prays three things. And I want you to know ahead of time, these are the same three things you need to pray when you don't know what to do, when you're in a crisis. Let's read these verses and I'll point them out. And I want you to see that we see these three things from three questions that Jehoshaphat asks in his prayer. Verse 5, Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in the front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not, there's the question, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. Are you not? Jehoshaphat is affirming that it is God who rules over all nations, that power and might are in his hands, that no one can stand against him. So the first thing that you need to pray when you don't know what to do is you need to affirm who God is. You need to focus on God's character. And here Jehoshaphat says, God, are you not the creator of all things? Now here's the question. Is God the creator of all things? You know, we we sometimes do theology by voting, so we're going to do that right now, okay? Uh, How many of you believe that God is the creator of all things? We just raise your hands. Okay, so 
as you've raised your hands on that, here's the second question. If God created the entire universe, the Bible says, by the word of his power, do you think he has the power to deal with your problem? See, that's what Jehoshaphat is, is doing right here. If God created all things, then surely he knows what to do as we face these problems. So as you pray, when you don't know what to do, you affirm that God is in control. And is anything too hard for God? No. The Bible says with God, all things are what? Possible. You affirm that God has all wisdom. And when you can't figure things out, he already has figured things out. It wasn't any problem for him. You know, you just keep rehearsing who God is. And as you do that, it builds and strengthens your faith. Verses 7 through 9. Oh, our God, did you not? Here's the second question. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. Second question, did you not? As we pray, we remember what God has done. And Jehoshaphat is remembering how God has acted in the past for his people, how God has won victories for his people in the past, how he drove out the enemy nations that were in this land and gave it to his people because of this covenant promise he had made with Abraham. And in a similar way for us, when our lives are hard and confusing, we can build our faith and we can be assured as we remember the ways that God has worked in our lives, the things that God has done for you. You say, well, what kind of things are you talking about? Here's the first one. You start with your salvation. You start with the fact that the God of the universe loved you despite your sin and gave his only son for you and forgave your sins. And now you get to live in his family forever. How's that for a start? If God has done that for you, the Apostle Paul says it over and over again, then everything else he'll do for you is very small in comparison. Do you see? And so when you're thinking about what God has done for you, always begin with the fact, I'm saved. Say that, I'm saved. I'm saved. I've been redeemed. I'm no longer a slave to fear, as we just sang. That's where we begin. God has done great things for us, and that's not all. I mean, we, we also can remember the times that he has answered our prayers. How many of you have had a prayer that got answered? Would you just raise your hand? Do you recall these things in your life? How, how many of you have experienced a time where God kept you safe you, and you knew that he had protected you in a certain situation? How many of you have had an experience where you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has provided for your family's needs? You see what I'm talking about here You go and you remember when you're in this confusion and you're in this doubt, you don't know what to do. You go and you ask God to do again what he's done in the past. You remember what he has already done in your life. Verse 10 says, But now here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by 
coming to drive us out of the possession you gave as an inheritance. Verse 12, here's the third question. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? The third question, will you not, is an appeal to God's promises. See, in this case, God has promised them this land. He gave it to them as an inheritance. It was part of the covenant promise that God had made first with their ancestor Abraham. So Jehoshaphat is appealing to God's promises. We should do that today. When we pray, especially when we don't know what to do, we should always appeal to God's promises to us. And the Bible is full of them. God promises to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. Appeal to that promise when you feel abandoned and alone and you know you're not. God promises to always love us. He's never going to take his love away from us. And if you don't feel loved, then you appeal to that promise and you ask God to give you a sense of his love with you. God promises to be our father. God promises to provide for our needs. God promises to calm our fears. God promises to answer our prayers. You know, some people say there are as many as 7,000 promises in the Bible, and you should make it a habit as you read God's Word and you see a promise from God to write that promise down so you can access it later. You should memorize some of those promises so that they're in your heart, and when you don't know what to do, that's another resource you have to draw on. And then we get to the last part of verse 12. And I think in many senses, this is like the heart of this story. Here's what Jehoshaphat prays. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That is such an amazing verse, isn't it? Somebody ought to put that on a coffee cup, but that almost trivializes it. It's so much better than that. It's really the heart of the story. This is the place we all need to find ourselves because it tells us something very important. Write this down as well. When you don't know what to do, admit your powerlessness. Confess to your father your inadequacy, your inability to solve the problem that is in front of you. Maybe underline here in this verse that phrase, for we have no power. And see, some of us, the problem is that we are still trying to fix everything on our own. And, and, you know, as long as you're saying, God, uh, I think I can pretty much solve this marriage problem on my own. God may be saying back to you, all right, be my guest. Some of us, if we're still saying, God, I know I'm in this financial uh, predicament. I'm in debt over my head, but I think I can work my way out of it. God might say, go for it. See how you do. And and what you need to do is get to the place Jehoshaphat was. Look where where he prays in verse 12. He says, God, we have no power. But then go back to verse 6, and he prays there, God, you have all power. Put those two things together, and now you're getting the picture. And now you're beginning to understand where you need to live and, and what you need to do when you don't know what to do. You see, to actually be able to do this, though, all these things, pray like Jehoshaphat prayed these three questions, this admission of powerlessness. I'm just telling you, you must be today in your regular, ordinary life, while things are pretty good mostly, you must be building God's word into your life. You must be reading God's word every day. You must be praying consistently because 40 days of prayer is over. Don't go back to the way you were praying before. Keep praying. 
You need to build these resources deep before the crisis comes. And there are some of us who will get to our moments of crisis and we will not be able to draw on God's promises simply because we don't know them. We haven't read them. We're not going to be able to recall God's actions in our lives, what God has done for us, because we haven't even taken the time to remember and recognize when God answers our prayers and when God does stuff for us. A lot of times we take the credit for that ourselves, don't we? We're going to get to this point in our lives where we aren't even able to affirm God's character in prayer because we really haven't gotten to know him. And on top of all of that, do you realize, do you understand when you get in crisis, your thinking gets foggy and confused. And so you need to build this stuff deep while you're not in crisis. While life seems to be working pretty well, don't wait until you don't know what to do to try to figure out what you should do. Learn now from God so that you're able to respond out of his truth in the moment of crisis. So we see in this story, when you don't know what to do, you need to start by stopping and praying. And as you pray, you need to focus on God, who he is, how he acts, what he promises. And then third, after you've prayed, it's time to obey God. So there comes a time where we, we act. And what we see here is kind of a unique situation. Let's pick it up in verse 13. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. And I'll just observe here we see them responding to this crisis in community. This is an important insight for us. You don't have to go through your crisis by yourself. You need to get together with other believers. Verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Verse 15, He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says to you. Here's the message. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You see, after you pray, at some point, God is going to be telling you some things that you need to do, some actions you need to do to take, and you need to obey him. You say, well, what does obeying God mean? It may mean different things in different circumstances, but I think consistently it is going to mean what we see here. It starts with this. It starts with you stopping being afraid or discouraged. Stop being afraid or discouraged. God says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged because of this vast army. It is not your battle. It is mine. You say, how do I stop being afraid? Well, I want to recognize that uh, emotions of fear and anxiety are complex, and it's not always as simple as just turning, you know, the knob one way and you, you put it to rest. But you start to obey this command when you live out of the reality that it is God's battle to fight, and you start trusting God to fight for you. Amen? Amen? So here's the thing. The moment you became a follower of Christ, you you gave God your life, right? That's what it means to follow God. You say, God, I give you my life. Here's the good news with that. When God takes your life, he takes your problems. Isn't that good? I mean, it's good to know. God says, 
you know, it's my battle to fight. I take your problems on. So if you have marriage problems, God says those are mine, my problems to fight. If you have financial problems, God says, is this my battle to fight? You just got to trust me with it. You got to trust that God is fighting on our behalf. And there may be some of you here right now, you are very tired and very discouraged. And the reason is you are trying to fight battles that aren't even yours. The reality is you're trying to play God. And God is saying to you, quit fighting my battles. The battle is not yours, it is mine. And if God spoke audibly to some of us, he might even say, who do you think you are? You know, some of us try and we fail and we get discouraged and we say, God, I'm so sorry, I failed, I really let you down. I think God says, no, you didn't let me down because you weren't holding me up in the first place. You don't hold God up. God holds you up. You don't have God in your hands. God has you in his hands. And maybe, maybe God is just waiting for some of us to give up and give it to him. Maybe he just wants us to do what he tells us to do, to stop being afraid and start trusting him. Maybe God is just saying, that's all I'm waiting for. Now, God tells Jehoshaphat that the battle is his, but then he tells him that he is to march to the battle site. He tells him where he should go. But then notice this, because it's God's battle, God says in verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Now, That's a pretty strange battle, isn't it? Just stand firm in your positions and watch God do it. Just rest in faith. I don't know if you know this or not, but 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17 is exactly the exact middle verse in the Old Testament. There's exactly as many verses before as there are after it. Isn't that interesting? You say, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Nothing. Just trivia. And the sad thing is, some of you, that's the only thing you're going to take out of this message. I now know where the middle verse in the whole Old Testament is. But what really matters is the truth, the truth of this verse, where God is saying, it's not your battle. You won't have to fight. Take up your positions and just watch me win for you. Has anybody noticed that it's the second time now that God has said, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Here's a question. Has God ever lost a battle? God wins every battle. God has a 100% success rate. God never loses. And that means we don't have to be afraid. If we trust him, victory is assured. The battle is his, not ours. Some of you who are kind of history buffs may remember that in World War II, When the Allies landed at Normandy on D-Day, between D-Day and the end of the war on V-E Day, when they marched into Berlin and there was total conquest, there were several times where the Allies actually were beaten in different skirmishes, the Battle of the Bulge, etc. But no one during that period really doubted that ultimately the Allies were going to win. Because the moment they landed on Normandy... Because they had far superior resources, far superior manpower, those who understood knew that 
victory ultimately was just a matter of time. They might lose a few minor battles along the way, but ultimately the Allies are going to defeat the Nazis. See, this is kind of the way it is with the battles we face. We may lose a few skirmishes here and there, but ultimate victory is always assured if you are in Christ, if you are a believer. I want to point out two important words in verse 17. They're the words, stand firm. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Stand firm is what you do when you have confidence, confidence in God while you wait for him to do what he says. You know, I've learned from personal experience that it is almost always never God's will for me to run from a difficult situation. Why? Well, almost always God is trying to teach me something and he wants me to learn from that situation. He may want me to learn that he is sufficient in every situation, that there is no problem too difficult for him. He may want me to learn another thing. But if I run from a problem, then I don't learn that. And what God usually does, have you noticed, is he just brings it back around again in another way. And so the lesson here is don't run, stand firm, kind of get it over with. Learn the lesson quickly that God has for us. Look at verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. So what do I stand firm on? I want you to notice there are two things we see in the next verse that we are to stand firm on. Verse 20 says, Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. Do you want to be upheld? Do you want to be successful in your life? Two things we need to stand firm on. Stand firm on the character of God. This is very similar to what we talked about a few moments ago. We trust in who God is and then stand firm on the truth of God's word. We we build our lives on the promises that God has revealed to us in his word. Okay, finally, we come to the last thing I want you to see, and this is so important. We, We talked about this in our 40 day small groups, but it's good to hear it again. When you don't know what to do, Display faith by thanking God in advance. Thanking God in advance. Now, this is an incredible story. On one mountain, there are three enemy nations. They are amassed and ready. They can taste the blood. They're going to annihilate the the Israelites. And then on the other side is this puny Israelite army. And they're both going to go down into the valley to have a battle. And now we actually see God's detailed plan that he gives to Jehoshaphat. Are you ready for this? Verse 21. Here it is. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. So he comes before the people and he says, I know we're outnumbered three to one, so here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the choir in front of the army. The worship team is going to go first. 
And actually, as the lead pastor, I think that's a pretty good plan. I, I'm down with that. You know, bring your tambourines. Uh, you know, bring your guitars. I mean, they call some guitars like an axe, right? You know, use that. We're going to go out and we're going to sing because singing defeats armies, doesn't it? It really does. And it's kind of interesting. You would think if, if you were going to do this plan, if you were going to go out singing, you would sing something that might scare the opposition, like the Lord our God is a God of wrath and he destroys all of our enemies. But they don't even bring that one out. They just say, give thanks to God because God is love. <laughs> and, and, and you read that and you think, what is going on? Well, I think what's going on is this is a symbol that they are thanking God in advance for this victory that God has already given. And there is a sense, especially when you face some uncertain situation, that when you praise God in the midst of that, that you are thanking him for what he is going to do, even when you don't know what he's going to do, even when you can't see what he might be going to do. See, it was a statement of faith to say, we're putting the choir out in front. They sing, These familiar words so common throughout the Old Testament give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever because there is power in praise. When you start praising God in the midst of your problem, thanking God that he's going to take care of it, you're going to see some incredible things take place. There is power in thanking and praising and expecting God to act. So a question I have for you today. When are you going to start thanking God for your situation? You say, I think I'll do that when he answers. Then I'll thank him. Okay. (laughs) But what kind of faith does it take to do that, to thank God for, for doing something after he's done it? Anybody can do that. Faith is thanking God in advance, praising God in advance that God is going to do what only God can do. And it's pretty remarkable here when you read the rest of the story to see what God does in response to their faith, their thanks, their praise. There's three results we see. First of all, God gave them victory. Look at verses 22 and 23. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Now, what happened here? We don't really know, but somehow God confused them and caused them to start fighting each other while the Israelites were praying God, praising God. They started knocking each other off. They started killing one another. And the Israelites are just watching this go on until finally they, they all die. They just kill each other. They devastate themselves. God gives victory. Second, I want you to see, as they thank God in advance, God gave them more than they asked. Verse 24, when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Now, if we stop right there, that's a pretty good answer to prayer, right? I mean, you know, if you pray, God, we don't want to die. And God says, okay, you don't have to die. That's good. That's real good. But it's more than that. Verse 25, so Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value. 
more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the valley of Baraka to this day. And when I read that, I think, isn't that just like God? He, he not only answers their prayer and saves them, rescues them, he gives them so much plunder. This is wealth. These are resources, so much that it takes three whole days just to haul it back. And then on the fourth day, they gather together for another service of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, Baraka is the Hebrew word for blessing. And so the result of thanking God in advance was they got to live in the valley of blessing. Who wants to live in the valley of blessing? I mean, I want to live there. And how do you live there? Will you live there when you thank and you praise God in advance, even when you can't see the answers because you believe that God is good and God always outdoes our expectations? Third thing we see, God glorifies his name. Verse 27, then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. The fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. One of the benefits when we let God fight our battles and we thank him in advance for the victory, when that victory comes, other people notice. And sometimes it's unbelievers that see. In this particular case, all the other enemy nations says, uh, you don't want to get in a fight with those people because they have a secret weapon and his name is Yahweh. It, it set the whole world on notice that God was fighting their battles. And God still does this today. Do you understand this? The world takes notice when we, as God's people, live by faith in God, when we truly trust him. The Bible says God is waiting to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him, those who trust him. God is looking for people that he can bless so that he can prove and demonstrate to the world that he is alive, and he really take steps of blessing and faith when we trust him enough to step out in faith and display our trust in him. You know, I've been talking throughout this message about how we all face individually circumstances, situations where we don't know what to do. But some of you have already gotten there. This also applies to our current situation as a church family. We don't know what to do. We have tried everything, and I mean everything and we found ourselves doing everything we know how to do facing this delay. And I'll be honest with you, I don't like this delay we're facing as a church. I'll be honest with you, this delay makes no sense to me. But I kind of have the sneaking suspicion that God doesn't really care. <laughs> he doesn't care if it doesn't make sense to me. He doesn't really care if I don't like it. But I also believe and I trust that God knows what he's doing. 
And so even though I don't like it, even though it doesn't make sense to me, even though I don't know what to do, I can trust that maybe God is up to something bigger and better than I can even imagine. Maybe God is doing something to glorify his name that we haven't seen yet. Maybe there's some people in this church family, maybe some of you seated right here, and you need to see something that God is going to display about his goodness, his power. Maybe it's being done to encourage you. And maybe it's bigger even than that. Maybe it spreads out beyond our walls. Maybe there are some people in our community who need to see the witness of a people who trust God even when life doesn't always go their way. Maybe God is going to glorify his name among some people who don't know him right now, and they're going to come to know him. See, we don't know what God is up to, but we can know that God is always at work and that God knows what he's doing, that he has everything under control, and so therefore, we can trust him. Therefore, we can rest. What do you do when you don't know what to do? I think it's always true for every single one of us, you gotta stop and pray. And as you pray, you focus on God. You don't put your focus on your problems. And after you pray, When God tells you what you should do, you obey him. You do what he says. And then you just start thanking him in advance, even before you see what it is he's doing in your life. God is good, friends. He's good all the time. And we can know that, and we can trust that, and we can live our lives in that knowledge even when we don't know what to do. Would you bow your heads?